Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 3 Such, then, I said, are the kinds of stories that I think future guardians should and should not hear about the gods from childhood on, if they are to honor the gods and their parents and not take their friendship with one another lightly. I'm sure we're right about that at any rate. What if they are to be courageous as well? Shouldn't they be told stories that will make them least afraid of death? Or do you think that anyone ever becomes courageous if he's possessed by this fear? No, I certainly don't. And can someone be unafraid of death, preferring it to defeat in battle or slavery, if he believes in a Hades full of terrors? Not at all. Then we must supervise such stories, and those who tell them, and ask them not to disparage the life in Hades in this unconditional way, but rather to praise it, since what they now say is neither true nor beneficial to future warriors. We must. Then we'll expunge all that sort of disparagement, beginning with the following lines, quote, I would rather labor on earth in service to another, to a man who is landless with little to live on, than be king over all the dead, End quote. And also these, quote, He feared that his home should appear to gods and men dreadful, dark, and hated even by the gods, End quote. And, quote, Alas, there survives in the halls of Hades a soul, a mere phantasm, with its wits completely gone, end quote. And this, quote, and he alone could think, the others are flitting shadows, end quote. And, quote, the soul, leaving his limbs, made its way to Hades, lamenting its fate, leaving manhood and youth behind, end quote. And these, quote, his soul went below the earth like smoke, screeching as it went, end quote. And, quote, as when bats in an awful cave fly around screeching if one of them falls from the cluster on the ceiling, all clinging to one another, so their souls went screeching, end quote. We'll ask Homer and the other poets not to be angry if we delete these passages and all similar ones. It isn't that they aren't poetic and pleasing to the majority of hearers, but that the more poetic they are, the less they should be heard by children or by men who are supposed to be free and to fear slavery more than death. Most certain. And the frightening and dreadful names for the underworld must be struck out. For example, Cossetus and Styx. And also the names for the dead. For example, those below and the sapless ones, and all those names of things in the underworld that make everyone who hears them shudder. They may be all well and good for other purposes, but we are afraid that our guardians will be made softer and more malleable by such shudders. And our fear is justified. Then such passages are to be struck out? Yes. And poets must follow the opposite pattern in speaking and writing? Clearly. Must we also delete the lamentations and pitiful speeches of famous men? We must, if indeed what we said before is compelling. Consider, though, whether we are right to delete them or not. We surely say that a decent man doesn't think that death is a terrible thing for someone decent to suffer, even for someone who happens to be his friend. We do say that. 
then he won't mourn for him as for someone who has suffered a terrible fate. Certainly not. We also say that a decent person is most self-sufficient in living well and, above all others, has the least need of anyone else. That's true. Then it's less dreadful for him than for anyone else to be deprived of his son, brother, possessions, or any other such things. Much less. Then he'll least give way to lamentations and bear misfortune most quietly when it strikes. Certainly. We'd be right, then, to delete the lamentations of famous men, leaving them to women, and not even to good women, either, and to cowardly men, so that those we say we are training to guard our city will disdain to act like that. That's right. Again, then, we'll ask Homer and the other poets not to represent Achilles, the son of a goddess, as, quote, lying now on his side, now on his back, now again on his belly, then standing up to wander distracted this way and that on the shore of the unharvested sea, end quote. Nor to make him pick up ashes in both hands and pour them over his head, weeping and lamenting in the ways he does in Homer, nor to represent Priam, a close descendant of the gods, as entreating his men and, quote, rolling around in dung, calling upon each man by name, end quote. And will ask them even more earnestly not to make the gods lament and say, quote, alas, unfortunate that I am, wretched mother of a great son, end quote. But if they do make the gods do such things, at least they mustn't dare to represent the greatest of the gods as behaving in so unlikely a fashion as to say, quote, Alas, with my own eyes I see a man who is most dear to me chased around the city, and my heart laments, end quote. Or, quote, Woe is me that Sarpedon, who is most dear to me, should be fated to be killed by Patroclus, the son of Menoetius, end quote. If... Our young people, Adamantus, listen to these stories without ridiculing them as not worth hearing, it's hardly likely that they'll consider the things described in them to be unworthy of mere human beings like themselves, or that they'll rebuke themselves for doing or saying similar things when misfortune strikes. Instead, they'll feel neither shame nor restraint, but groan and lament at even insignificant misfortunes. What you say is completely true. Then, as the argument has demonstrated, and we must remain persuaded by it until someone shows us a better one, they mustn't behave like that. No, they mustn't. Moreover, they mustn't be lovers of laughter either, for whenever anyone indulges in violent laughter, a violent change of mood is likely to follow. So I believe. Then, if someone represents worthwhile people as overcome by laughter, we won't approve and we'll approve even less if they represent gods that way. Much less. Then we won't approve of Homer saying things like this about the gods. Quote, An unquenchable laughter arose among the blessed gods as they saw Hephaestus limping through the hall. End quote. According to your argument, such things must be rejected. If you want to call it mine, but they must be rejected in any case. Moreover, we have to be concerned about truth as well. For if what we just said now is correct, and falsehood, though of no use to the gods, is useful to people as a form of drug, clearly we must allow only doctors to use it, not private citizens. Clearly. Then if it is appropriate for anyone to use falsehoods for the good of the city, because of the actions of either enemies or citizens, it is the rulers. But everyone else must keep away from them, 
because for a private citizen to lie to a ruler is just as bad a mistake as for a sick person or athlete not to tell the truth to his doctor or trainer about his physical condition, or for a sailor not to tell the captain the facts about his own condition or that of the ship and the rest of the crew. Indeed, it is a worse mistake than either of these. That's completely true. And if the ruler catches someone else telling falsehoods in the city, quote, any one of the craftsmen, whether a prophet, a doctor who heals the sick, or a maker of spears, end quote, he'll punish him for introducing something as subversive and destructive to a city as it would be to a ship. He will if practice is to follow theory. What about moderation? Won't our young people also need that? Of course. And aren't these the most important aspects of moderation for the majority of people? Namely, to obey the rulers and to rule the pleasures of drink, sex, and food for themselves? Well, that's my opinion at any rate. Then we'll say that the words of Homer's Diomedes are well put. Quote, Sit down in silence, my friend, and be persuaded by me. End quote. And so is what follows. Quote, the Achaeans, breathing eagerness for battle, marched in silence, fearing their commanders. End quote. And all other such things. Those are well put. But what about this? Quote, Wine-bibber, with the eyes of a dog and the heart of a deer. End quote. And the rest. Is it, or any other headstrong word spoken in prose or poetry by private citizens against their rulers, well put? No, they aren't. I don't think they are suitable for young people to hear, not in any case with a view to making them moderate, though it isn't surprising that they are pleasing enough in other ways. What do you think? The same as you. What about making the cleverest man say that the finest thing of all is when, quote, the tables are well laden with bread and meat, and the wine-bearer draws wine from the mixing bowl and pours it in the cups, end quote. Or, quote, death by starvation is the most pitiful fate, end quote. Do you think that such things make for self-control in young people? Or what about having Zeus, when all the other gods are asleep and he alone is awake, easily forget all his plans because of sexual desire, and be so overcome by the sight of Hera that he doesn't even want to go inside but wants to possess her there on the ground, saying that his desire for her is even greater than it was when, without their parents' knowledge, they were first lovers? Or what about the chaining together of Ares and Aphrodite by Hephaestus, also the result of sexual passion? No, by God. None of that seems suitable to me. But if, on the other hand, there are words or deeds of famous men who are exhibiting endurance in the face of everything, surely they must be seen or heard. For example, quote, He struck his chest and spoke to his heart, Endure, my heart, you've suffered more shameful things than this. End quote. They certainly must. Now, we mustn't allow our men to be money lovers or to be bribable with gifts. Certainly not then the poets mustn't sing to them. Quote, gifts persuade gods, and gifts persuade revered kings. End quote. Nor must Phoenix, the tutor of Achilles, be praised as speaking with moderation when he advises him to take the gifts and defend the Achaeans, but not to give up his anger without gifts. Nor should we think such things to be worthy of Achilles himself. Nor should we agree that he was such a money lover that he would accept the gifts of Agamemnon or release the corpse of Hector for a ransom, but not otherwise. It certainly isn't right to praise such things. It is only out of respect for Homer, indeed, that I hesitate to say that it is positively impious to accuse Achilles of such things, or to believe others who say them. 
or to make him address Apollo in these words, quote, You've injured me, far-shooter, most deadly of the gods, and I'd punish you if I had the power, end quote. Or to say that he disobeyed the river, a god, and was ready to fight it, or that he consecrated hair to the dead Patroclus, which was already consecrated to a different river, Sphercheos. It isn't to be believed that he did any of these. Nor is it true that he dragged the dead Hector around the tomb of Patroclus, or massacred the captives on his pyre. So we'll deny that. Nor will we allow our people to believe that Achilles, who is the son of a goddess and of Peleus, the most moderate of men and the grandson of Zeus, and who was brought up by the most wise Chiron, was so full of inner turmoil as to have two diseases in his soul, slavishness accompanied by the love of money on the one hand, and arrogance towards gods and humans on the other. That's right. We certainly won't believe such things, nor will we allow it to be said that Theseus, the son of Poseidon, and Perithous, the son of Zeus, engaged in terrible kidnappings, or that any other hero and son of a god dared to do any of the terrible and impious deeds that they are now falsely is said to have done. We'll compel the poets either to deny that the heroes did such things, or else to deny that they were children of the gods. They mustn't say both, or attempt to persuade our young people that the gods bring about evil, or that heroes are no better than humans. As we said earlier, these things are both impious and untrue, for we demonstrated that it is impossible for the gods to produce bad things. Of course. Moreover, these stories are harmful to people who hear them, for everyone will be ready to excuse himself when he's bad, if he is persuaded that similar things both are being done now, and have been done in the past by, quote, close descendants of the gods, those near to Zeus, to whom belongs the ancestral altar high up on Mount Ida, in whom the blood of daemons has not weakened, end quote. For that reason, we must put a stop to such stories, lest they produce in the youth a strong inclination to do bad things. Absolutely. Now, isn't there a kind of story whose content we haven't yet discussed? So far we've said how one should speak about gods, heroes, daemons, and things in Hades. We have. Then what's left is how to deal with stories about human beings, isn't it? Obviously. But we can't settle that matter at present. Why not? Because I think we'll say that what poets and prose writers tell us about the most important matters concerning human beings is bad. They say that many unjust people are happy, and many just ones wretched that injustice is profitable if it escapes detection, and that justice is another's good but one's own loss. I think we'll prohibit these stories and order the poets to compose the opposite kind of poetry and tell the opposite kind of tales. Don't you think so? I know so. But if you agree that what I said is correct, couldn't I reply that you've agreed to the very point that is in question in our whole discussion? And you'd be right to make that reply. Then we'll agree about what stories should be told about human beings only when we've discovered what sort of thing justice is, and how by nature it profits the one who has it, whether he is believed to be just or not. That's very true. This concludes our discussion of the content of stories. We should now, I think, investigate their style, for we'll then have fully investigated both what should be said and how it should be said. I don't understand what you mean, Adamantus responded. But you must, I said. Maybe you'll understand it better if I put it in this way. Isn't everything said by poets and storytellers a narrative about past, present, or future events? 
what else could it be? And aren't these narratives either narrative alone or narrative through imitation or both? I need a clearer understanding of that as well. I seem to be a ridiculously unclear teacher. So, like those who are incompetent at speaking, I won't try to deal with the matter as a whole, but I'll take up a part and use it as an example to make plain what I want to say. Tell me, do you know the beginning of the Iliad, where the poet tells us that Chryses begs Agamemnon to release his daughter, that Agamemnon harshly rejects him, and that, having failed, Chryses prays to the god against the Achaeans? I do. You know, then, that up to the lines, quote, and he begged all the Achaeans, but especially the two sons of Atreus, the commander of its army, end quote. The poet himself isn't speaking and doesn't attempt to get us to think that the speaker is someone other than himself. After this, however, he speaks as if he were Chryses and tries as far as possible to make us think that the speaker isn't Homer, but the priest himself, an old man. And he composes pretty well the rest of the narrative about events in Troy, Ithaca, and the whole Odyssey in this way. That's right. Now, the speeches he makes and the parts between them are both narrative. Of course. But when he makes a speech as if he were someone else, won't we say that he makes his own style as much like that of the indicated speaker as possible? We certainly will. Now, to make oneself like someone else in voice or appearance is to imitate the person one makes oneself like. Certainly. In these passages, then, it seems that he and the other poets effect their narrative through imitation. That's right. If the poet never hid himself, the whole of his poem would be narrative without imitation. In order to prevent you from saying again that you don't understand, I'll show you what this would be like. If Homer said that Chryses came up with a ransom for his daughter to supplicate the Achaeans, especially the kings, and after that didn't speak as if he had become Chryses, but still as Homer, there would be no imitation, but rather simple narrative. It would have gone something like this. I'll speak without meter, since I'm no poet. And the priest came and prayed that the gods would allow them to capture Troy and be safe afterwards, that they'd accept the ransom and free his daughter, and thus show reverence for the god. When he'd said this, the others showed their respect for the priest and consented. But Agamemnon was angry and ordered him to leave and never to return, lest his priestly wand and the wreaths of the god should fail to protect him. He said that, before freeing the daughter, he'd grow old in Argos by her side. He told Chryses to go away and not to make him angry if he wanted to get home safely. When the old man heard this, he was frightened and went off in silence. But when he left the camp, he prayed at length to Apollo, calling him by his various titles and reminding him of his own services to him. If any of these services had been found pleasing, whether it was the building of temples or the sacrifice of victims, he asked in return that the arrows of the god should make the Achaeans pay for his tears. That is the way we get simple narrative without imitation. I understand then also understand that the opposite occurs when one omits the words between the speeches and leaves the speeches by themselves. I understand that too. Tragedies are like that. That's absolutely right. And now I think that I can make clear to you what I couldn't before. One kind of poetry and storytelling implies only imitation, tragedy and comedy, as you say. Another kind employs only narration by the poet himself. You find this most of all in dithyrams. A third kind uses both, 
as in epic poetry and many other places, if you follow me. Now I understand what you're trying to say. Remember, too, that before all that we said, that we had dealt with what must be said in stories, but that we had yet to investigate how it must be said. Yes, I remember. Well, this, more precisely, is what I meant. We need to come to an agreement about whether we'll allow poets to narrate through imitation, and if so, whether they are to imitate some things but not others, and what those things are, and whether or not to imitate at all. I divine that you're looking into the question of whether or not we'll allow tragedy and comedy into our city. Perhaps, and perhaps even more than that, for I myself really don't know yet, but whatever direction the argument blows us, that's where we must go. Fine. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.